Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number 20 of our Nature of Middle-earth discussion. I am... Oh dear, I seem to have lost one of my windows. wonder where I misplaced it to. Oh well. <laughs> Sorry. It's the chat window, so that's tolerably important. Where did we go? It was right, it was right there. Huh. How peculiar. All right. Uh, it believes it's open somewhere. Huh. Well, that's interesting. Okay. So I apologize. I can't see the chat from Twitch um, and YouTube, but I can see the chat uh, from uh, those who are with me in Zoom. How odd. All right. Well, there we are. Um, uh, thanks, everybody, for joining me. So uh, tonight we are going to finish part two of The Nature of Middle-Earth. He says with extremely great confidence. It's absolutely happening. Uh, and getting into section three, which is um, a little bit more eclectic. Uh, in its uh, content for sure, um, which I find pretty interesting actually. A whole bunch of uh, random stuff we're going to get to soon. We're going to be getting to Lembus and, uh, uh, you know, the founding of Nargothrond and a whole bunch of other random um, uh, <laughs> random things. I just love the chapter titles. Uh, you know, Elvish Journeys on Horseback uh, and things like that. Lots of miscellaneous stuff, which should be a lot of fun. Um, so, anyway. Let's uh, let us jump in here in a second. Yeah, it's uh, Chris says I was disappointed there wasn't a mathematical exegesis of recipes for Lembus. I know uh, there's anybody going through math withdrawal. I mean, it's uh, it's been hard uh, since part one, really. Um, but uh, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. Um, uh, we'll see. Um, but um, anyway, uh, one. Two, two quick announcements before we begin. First, I wanted to uh, make sure to invite folks to our upcoming moots. Uh, we have text moot coming up very soon on the 26th of this very month in Mar of March in Austin, Texas. And we have Sunshine Moot near Orlando, Florida uh, on the next weekend, on the 2nd of April. Uh, so if you go to signumuniversity.org slash events, you'll be able to find the links to register for either one of those things. You can join us in person if you are anywhere nearby or can get yourself nearby, Austin or Orlando, uh, over those two weekends. Uh, you can come and join us in person for a some really fun discussion and time hanging out together. If you can't, then you can join us digitally uh, for either or both of those moots. So I urge you to look into that uh, and see if you can join us because our moots are always a great deal of fun. And then we have... Uh, uh, I also wanted to draw your attention to what's going on in our space program. Our space program has... Uh, been just blowing up lately, which is really fun. I mean, in like, you know, good ways and stuff. Um, so in our space program, we have, uh, you know, so you, uh, you, you, Buy your space tokens, right, uh, which you redeem for uh, modules, uh, month-long modules later on. And then we've got the modules that we're running now. 
BlackBerry there is our new uh, uh, our new enrollment system. Uh, it's really cool. Named after the rabbit, of course, the very clever rabbit. But um, we have 10 confirmed modules running this coming month, this, uh, this April, uh, including some really awesome stuff. We've got, you'll remember that we did our discussion of Out of the Silent Planet. Um, Serena Higgins is leading a module on reading Lewis's Ransom Cycle, thinking about the whole cycle uh, in its entirety. Um, and uh, we've got uh, James Tauber uh, and Elise trudel Cedeno running the Bridge to the Silmarillion uh, module for folks who have struggled with that jump from the uh, uh, from the Lord of the Rings to the Silmarillion. Really, really useful module. Uh, we're starting an Old Norse sequence for p- folks who want to learn Old Norse, who've always been curious to read uh, Norse mythology in the original and get into the Old Norse language. Um, we have our conversational Spanish uh, uh, module running, our creative writing workshop, a history of anime, so many things that are going on here in April. All of these being offered and are concretely scheduled here this coming April. And then coming up in May, we've got a whole bunch of other modules and other new modules like Learn Klingon. We've got a Klingon, uh, the beginning of a Klingon sequence happening. Um, a, um, uh, a module on uh, uh, creative languages, on conlanging. Um, we've got on Tolkien's invented languages themselves. If you want to learn more about, uh, you know, you want to like your, your 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 beginnings, your first steps towards learning Tolkien's invented languages. Uh, we're starting a new Latin uh, cohort. We've had a really really popular uh, Latin sequence that people have been learning Latin, and we're starting a new one as well as a Greek one. We've got uh, we're doing a class on Full Metal Alchemist, the uh, the anime uh, uh, series, one on biological concepts in fantasy and science fiction. We have a biology professor who's teaching a course on biological concepts in fantasy and science fiction, a a study of uh, biology as it's depicted in fantasy and science fiction. Really cool stuff. Anyway, so many things going on uh, in uh, the coming month. That's just May. That's just May. Then there'll be more in June. It's so awesome. So definitely uh, suggest that you, uh, that you look into, um, uh, you you look into this as 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 much as you uh, as as much as you can. It's uh, it's pretty awesome. So signumuniversity.org/space and you can find that. All right, um, let's um, <laughs> let's dig into the text here. So we we're talking about death. At the very end of the last time we were looking at the sort of odd reincarnation of dwarves uh how the uh, speculation that perhaps the door the the dwarves actually preserved durin's body so that his spirit could periodically return to it uh which is a striking idea i have to say um and uh but uh now we move back uh towards elves again it was asked what those in the waiting do and whether they have care for those that live or knowledge of the events in Arda. Right? So this is a, um, you know, what, what happens in Mandos, actually, right? Let's say, inquiring minds want to know, what's it like inside Mandos? It was answered, they do nothing. For doing, in a creature of dual nature, requires the body, which is the instrument of the Thea in all its actions. If they desire to do, they desire to return. They think using their minds, so to speak, for they are their minds, as they are capable upon their contents. These are the memories of their life, 
but they may also learn in Mandos if they seek knowledge. As for those whom they have left in life, or the events of Arda, again, they may learn much if they desire to do so. It is said that they can see some things from afar through the eyes of others to whom they were dear, but in no way so as to disturb or influence the minds of the living for good or ill. Were they to attempt this, their sight would be veiled. But in Mandos, all the events of the tale of Arda, such as knowable to others than Eru, for the secrets of minds are not readable even by the Valar, are recorded. And to this knowledge and history, they have access according to their measure and will. Okay. Some really... There are some things in here which... I don't know, sort of normal things, right? I, 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 so first of all, we get that initial emphasis on doing, right? What do they do? Nothing. They don't do anything. To do, you need a body to do stuff, right? Um, thinking and learning doesn't count, right? I mean, they're, like they're, they're, they're floating minds and memories, right? Without a body, they can't do anything. Um, and this comes back to the stuff that we were looking at before about um, the decision to bring the elves out of Middle-earth, right? Uh, and we were looking at that, um, that they they need to have free use of their bodies in Middle-earth, right? In order to do what they were designed to do. And um, uh, now, without their bodies, they do nothing. And remember, that's the issue that Manwe was bringing to uh, Luvatar, Right in the dialogue between Manway and Iluvatar that we were looking at before as well, um, this whole death thing—it's a problem, isn't it? <laughs> you know, it's, I guess me paraphrasing Manway, right? It's a problem, isn't it? I mean, we've got these these elves who are whose fear are going to endure for the rest of art, and they can't do anything because they have no bodies. They've, you know, this this apparently permanent separation between life and between you know between body and spirit. Um, brought about by physical death, you know, by the mischances of, of, of life here in Arda, seems not right. Um, what can we do? And of course, that's what led to the whole reincarnation slash renovation of the body discussion. So we got first a reassertion of that, right? The, fea, the, the body is the instrument of the fair in all its action. If they desire to do they desire to return. So notice that he's, you know, he's not saying that like, okay, they're doomed to, um, they're doomed to not fulfill their purpose, right? To not do any of the things like the, you know, their, their spirits are desiring to accomplish things that they're, you know, and so therefore they're living these continued, you know, long extended lives of frustration and, uh, you know, denial of their purpose. No, no. Uh, you know, we're told that's not the case. If they if they desire, if they want to do something, right? If 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 they are feeling frustrated, um, then that means they desire to return to the body, which is open to them. Well, it's open to them uh, at the discretion of the Valar, right? So uh, the only ones that are going to be frustrated and prevented from doing anything are those who have. Uh, not learned their lesson about what they should and should not do, right? Then, or I'm looking at you. So, um, uh, but they can think, right? They can think. They can learn. Um, they uh, they can use their minds upon their the, their contents, right? And the contents of the fea are the memories of their life. So they can contemplate 
the memories of their life. They can walk in the memories of their life. Um, but they can learn. If they seek knowledge, they can learn. They can learn outside things outside themselves. And again, this has always been a part of the concept of Mendos, that you're learning, right? It's a teaching place. Um, your Feyar is in, your Feya is instructed uh, when you are in Mendos, has always been one of the, one of the concepts there. Um, so, okay, if they seek knowledge, they can get it. Um, but here comes the surprising thing. This is the, the first of the very surprising things to me in, the, in this passage. Um, it is said that they can see some things from afar through the eyes of others to whom they were dear. Really? Okay, so... Through the... And I don't understand this. I, I just, I can't pretend. I don't understand this at all. What does that even mean, exactly? Um, are they... Uh, um, they're able to... Um, by what mechanism does that happen? Those to whom they were dear. So, like, your brother is still alive in Middle-earth, and you can see through his eyes? How? I just... This I don't understand. And I'm trying to think of all the things that we've been told about spirits, and um, you know, I think of the Asanoi Kenta and everything else, and I just... I don't... I don't... I don't see it exactly. Um, I don't understand exactly how that works. Um, yeah, uh, I got my chat window up again here, finally. Um, but Tony um, uh, Neal says, Grandpa is watching. He's not watching you. He's watching through you, right? He's seeing things through your eyes. Um, which, uh, Tony, I'm trying to figure out if that's, like, more or less disturbing than Grandpa watching you uh, uh, from Mandos, you know, from, from death. Um Mary, I can only assume, I mean, it, it seems like it would have something to do um, with, uh, you know, the kind of mind-to-mind connection that, uh, you know, we saw discussed in the Asanre Kenta. Um, but, uh, and because it's true, Christopher, as you say, um, that um, uh, communication between people who are close to each other is easier. Um, so I suppose uh, that would be... Um, uh, but the thing is, here's here's my problem. Here's the reason that I'm struggling with that. I, I, I can imagine, I guess, how that's possible, right? But one of the things that's been repeated several times is that communication, you know, communion between, you know, in and out of Mendo's is that there's none. That's not possible. Um, that was just repeated uh, in the dialogue between uh, Manwe and Iluvatar, uh, unless I'm misremembering, um, that, you, you know, there's, there's this absolute prohibition of communication, but you can do this kind of one-way deal, right, where they can't... they Because, can, I mean, notice how like, he's insisting on it being one way, Right? Um, in no way so as to disturb or influence the minds of the living for good or ill, 
right? So they can't, they can't deliver anything. They can receive, but they can't deliver to the living. Um, were they to attempt this, that is influencing their minds at all, um, you know, again, delivering as well as receiving, um, their sight would be veiled. So, like, they'd get cut off. That connection would be cut off. Um, yeah, I don't, um, I don't really know. That's an interesting connection. Uh, Reg PFJ says it reminds me of Hurin seeing with Morgoth's sight what happens to his family. Um, that is interesting. Now, it's not the same because, of course, he's not being connected to his family. He's being connected horribly to Morgoth, right? Uh, and uh, that, one would think, would be far worse. Um, but, uh, yeah. Uh, very odd. Very odd. Um, I get the sense... Because of the, again, I'm thinking back to the Asanwe Kenta and the emphasis on the two-way thing going on there, right? That I mean, like that kind of utterly unilateral, you know, and it never went so far as seeing through people's eyes, like current events, right? Um, I mean, it's one thing to be able to open your minds to each other and you know, know what they're thinking or whatever, but to actually perceive through their eyes? Is that even how it... I mean, I don't remember that being described as how how that works, right? So it, it sounds a little bit like that kind of mind-to-mind connection, but it doesn't sound... It sounds unlike it in a bunch of ways, too. What it sounds almost more like is that what they are um, participating in here is not your typical fea-to-fea communication mechanism, um, but rather some kind of property of Mandos itself, right? That uh, uh, Mandos provides access to this sort of thing somehow. Um, you know, uh, you know, Mandos, Namo himself, right, knows whether you've been bad or good, Um Presumably, I mean, now he can't, but even he can't pry into your secret thoughts. So, I, you know, like, and do they get a choice, your loved ones? I mean, presumably, the fact that you were dear to them is, that seems to imply some kind of consent on their part or implicit consent on their part. But what about the unwill, right? I mean, like, what if, what if grandpa's trying to look through your eyes and you're not into it? Right, and you're like, buzz off, Grandpa. <laughs> this is private, right? This is a private feed here. Um, shouldn't that be? I mean, we get the repetition of the secrets of minds not being readable even by the Valar, right? Of the the sovereignty of the unwill. Um, but um, yeah, yeah, I don't. Um, I don't really. I don't really know. Exactly. Christopher says you wouldn't notice Grandpa looking through you. I know, right? Like, that is what makes it weird. Like, you, you don't even you don't even know. Um, uh, yeah. I I'm not sure I get it. 
I'm not sure I get it. Now, you know, again, he's this is not exactly a moment where he's fleshing this out very fully, right? Um, but I'm just not sure that I understand. But here's that last bit there. In Mandos, all the events of the tale of Arda are recorded. And to this knowledge and history, they have access according to their measure and will. So the tale of Arda is recorded there. Like we're, we, you know, in the summer early and we're told, um, uh, that it's recorded in the tapestries, right? It's what Vire is up to, uh, is recording everything. Um, this, uh, this seems to me a little bit less difficult, right? Um, if, uh, you know, Namo and the, you know, Namo's team, right? The other Ainur involved in the process, right? There's, there's, there's Namo and Vire and presumably other, uh, Maiar with them, right? Whose job is to observe and record. If that's one of the things that Mandos is doing that I, I can get behind that, right? I can, I can understand that. Um, now no, no, notice, of course, this is where we get the proviso, the tale of Arda, not the secrets of everybody's minds, because those are not readable by the Valar, even, right? So not even Namo gets access. It, it can break somebody's unwill, right? Um, so unless somebody's made themselves deliberately an open book to Mandos himself, then their, their minds are not going to be recorded there in Mandos. But, you know, the uh, the public feed, <laughs> right? The, the 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 story of what happens and whatever. Okay, so that's all there. And this is why I think it's the reference to the events of the tale of Arda that made me think maybe the whole looking through their eyes is less. It's not the um, uh, it's not the working of a power of the minds of the the dead dude, right? The elf in Mandos. Um, you know, that, that Fea exerting the power of his Fea to connect to the other Fea, right? Um, but rather participating in some kind of broadcast feature uh, uh, of uh, Mandos um, to which he's attuned by the, what, the mutual affection? I don't know. I'm trying to make it work. I don't understand. Um, but that's the closest that I got. And it's that, it's that idea, that idea that um, part of the sort of power, duty role, right, of, uh, of, of Mandos and, you know, the occupants of Mandos, um, is to record, is to, is to be in touch, right, to be in tune with what's going on uh, in the world out there, uh, in Arda, around Arda. Um, and, um, yeah, kind of weird, don't fully understand that, but that's, um, that's interesting. It's interesting. Um, and I have to think it's part of the teaching process as well, right? Um, one of the reasons that presumably they would have access to the knowledge of the tale of Arda is for them to understand, right? For them to get a wider picture on their life, their choices, right? Um, you know, like, Feanor, this is your life, right? Let's look at... Uh, um, you know, let's look at what was happening in Alquilande the day after, shall we? Right. Let's learn. Can we learn something about what, you know, um, you know, we see Feanor's view 
right? His um, perspective on the world narrowing and narrowing and narrowing, right? Um, from that moment, uh, well, I mean, all the way through, right? Um, I was trying to, I keep, I keep trying to name a starting point when Feanor's uh, kind of view of the world begins to, to, to kind of tunnel down, right? But I keep pushing back the point at which I want to start that. Uh, I was going to say, you know, the time when he refused the Silmarils to the Valar after the destruction of the trees. And then I'm like, well, actually it kind of happened before that when he was banished, right? Uh, and drew his sword on his brother. Actually, maybe before that, when his father married again, actually. Um, uh, you know, so anyway, but you can see this progressive, you know, the, the shift from Feanor as he was in the, like, when he drew his sword on his brother, right? And then you compare him to him leaving his brother and their people all behind and burning the ships, right? Um, his own self-absorption, his own, uh, that, that narrowing of his view um, of himself, of everybody else, right? Of what's going, with what the world is about, right? I mean, things have things have really, really compressed down, and so one can easily see how. Uh, okay, Feanor, Tale of Arda, big picture, right? Let's really, really think about the big picture here and try to understand all this and widen your view again. Uh, that kind of thing um, seems to me like a very natural way of understanding this uh, process of instruction that we always were told uh, was going on in Mendoz. But the whole seeing through people's eyes thing, that's the bit I don't think I get at all. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, now, Cecilia, I think... Um, uh, I see. Cecilia's saying, I can't think of Namo as both least partial judge and court reporter. I think the problem is with that latter. It's not about the court reporter, right? He's not recording what happens in court. Um, but you can see somebody, if you are the least partial judge, that would correlate with having the widest possible view and the widest possible understanding of everybody and all of their motivations and everything that's going on, right? Um uh, one of the things that makes for partial judges, right, um, that makes for, uh, uh, you know, flawed judgments is a lack of a full understanding of the whole story and how the situation fits into that whole story, right? Um, so I think if we kind of take that element of it outside of the purely forensic um, context, right? Courtroom context. Uh, then I think we can see how that kind of impartiality and that kind of fullness of knowledge uh, can uh, sort of uh, go together there, I think. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, exactly. I think that he's, it's, it's, uh, that, that's how I think those two things can kind of go together there. Um, okay. Um, Let's, uh, let's keep going. Interesting little parenthetical note. It would, no, it would no doubt to the incarnate have still held the pain of loss in farewell. That is, death in Arda unmarred, right? Death in Arda unmarred would no doubt to the incarnate still have held the pain of loss in farewell. But that is in part due to the mystery of love within time 
and in part due to the fact that the Incarnate only entered into the design of Ea after the rebellion of Melkor, so that their whole being is bound up with the Mare. This some hold, it is the will of Eru that they should redress or atone by the suffering of love. So, you know, one of the questions is, again, this, this, this death question. Um, would there have been death in Arda unmarred? Is death Melkor's fault because of how Arda has been marred by the rebellion of Melkor? Um, so is, is Melkor in that way sort of responsible for the sufferings of, uh, of the incarnates? And the answer is, okay, well, presumably, death would still have been possible in Arda Unmarred. Um, I, I mean, you could still get, you know, run over by a steamroller and then set on fire and thus have your Hroa be put out of commission, uh, right? I mean, presumably. That, okay, I don't know if there would be steamrollers necessarily in Arda Unmarred, but you know what I mean. Like, it's it's possible uh, to have the... Uh, uh, some by some mishap uh, uh, th- that presumably would still be at least a theoretical possibility, maybe very much more infrequent, right? Uh, because, uh, but but still, presumably it would still be theoretically possible uh, for your body to become decommissioned and therefore, as you know, as an elf, your spirit to be uh, separated from it and death to result. And if that did happen, it would no doubt to the incarnate have still held the pain of loss and farewell. So, could death have theoretically happened? Yeah, it could have. Um, If it did happen, would it have been sad? Yeah, of course it would. Because it would have been attached to loss and farewell. So how could that be? How could there be loss and pain and death in Arda unmarred? And this is kind kind of a twofold answer to the question. Right. The sort of simplest answer to the question is, but this is kind of pretty theoretical. Right. Um, There is no. To say what would life for the incarnate have been like in Arda Unmarred is an impossibility because the incarnates were never even brought in to the music. They were never brought in until after the Mare. Right. So was that Iluvatar's plan anyway? Would there have been incarnates? Had Arda been unmarred? That, from this, seems to be uncertain, right? Um, Their whole being is bound up with the marring. So, no incarnates, no elves, no humans predated the marring. So there is no sense of an optimal life that has been lost, right? Um, and this is really interesting to think of. We've drawn at many points. We've talked about things like the fall of man, and and we've 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 kind of paralleled and su- suggested some similarities and differences between the idea of you know fallenness in elves compared to uh, Catholic doctrines of fallen humanity and original sin. Um, there are, as I say, both similarities and differences there. Um, but this, there's a really important thing here that it's important not to overlook. All of the doctrines 
of original sin and uh, the fall of man and all of those things all start in Eden, right? In an unmarred situation. That's the story, right? Um, uh, the, 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 the Christian story, the Catholic story, the biblical story is the fall from paradise, right? The marring is not there in day one. Um, that's, that's the, uh, generally <laughs> the story, right? This is very different, right? Um, in this sense, there was no paradise. There is no Eden into which the incarnates in Tolkien's world were placed and which then they lost, right? So whatever similarity there may be, and again, we've looked at some similarities and some differences, whatever similarities there may be between the, uh, you know, the sinfulness of elves, the potential sinfulness of elves or whatever, you know, the potential of elves to commit sin or whatever, uh, and, uh, and original sin, the doctrine of original sin, this is a huge difference between those things, right? There is no fall exactly, not in the same sense, right? Um, they are bound up with the marring from the beginning. They are inserted into Arda marred on purpose, possibly because it was marred, right? This some hold it is the will of Eru that they should redress or atone, the theory here is that the point of the why did Iluvatar make the incarnates in the first place? So that they might be his instruments to redress or atone the marring of Arda. And so therefore, again, they are intrinsically connected with that marring. There is no concept of the incarnates in Arda unmarred. And so any kind of projection of that, any kind of what ifs that involve, you know, what if Arda were unmarred and the incarnates lived? What would things be like for them then? Um, totally theoretical. Totally theoretical because, again, this idea, some, some hold, right? It's, it's a theory. It's floating out there that it is the will of Eru that they should redress or atone for the marring of Arda by the suffering of love. And this gets back to the other answer to the question that he gave. So one answer to the question, what would death be like in Arda unmarred? What The big answer is irrelevant. Not even really a thing. Right? Because um, it never happened. Um, but notice the other answer. That is in part due to the mystery of love within time. That is when they are thinking through that theoretical but uh, unrealistic question of what would death among the incarnates, what might it have been like in Arda Unmarred, right? Their answer to that question, when they ask themselves that theoretical question, the answer is it would still have held the pain of loss and farewell, even in Arda Unmarred. Why? Why should it? If Arda is unmarred, why should there be the pain of loss and farewell? And the answer to that is the mystery of love within time. The mystery of love within time. 
if you love within time, the pain of loss and farewell is intrinsic to your experience. You cannot have love within time without the pain of loss and farewell. Timeless love? Sure. Without time as a factor, there needn't be loss and farewell. But with time involved, there's always going to be loss and farewell. That's intrinsic. It's part of the mystery of love within time. And that therefore, within time, love always involves at least the potential for suffering. When you love, when you are attached, right? Um, when you are giving yourself to something else and that something else, you're both moving within time, right? Um, and therefore there is the possibility of loss and farewell and the pain that goes along with that. There is necessarily involved the potential for suffering. Is that a bad thing? Well, then we come back around to the end of this passage and that theory that some people have that it is the will of Eru that the incarnates should redress or atone for the marring of Arda. It is the suffering of love that is, that's how it will happen. By the suffering of love shall the marring of Arda be redressed or atoned for through the incarnates, through those races themselves. Um, that is... Um, That is deep stuff, right? Um, and uh, this is a very brief parenthesis, right? So we don't have much more here. Um, I, my own suspicion is that if we were to sort of read this and then go back to the Athrobeth, we'd maybe understand that a little bit more. Um, uh, I cannot myself think about Eru attempting to redress or more conspicuously atone, that's a very conspicuous word, uh, for the marring of Arda through the suffering of love and the incarnates without thinking about Jesus. Uh, and I suspect that that's where Tolkien's mind was going as well. Uh, that the incarnates and the incarnate races are going to be an essential element in Iluvatar's plan to atone uh, for the marring and to heal the marring. Um, but of course, as is typical, um, he doesn't talk about that as much, right? He doesn't go into much detail on that. Um, what he says in the Athrobeth is some of the most explicit stuff he says anywhere. Uh, about that. Um, but even that's not super explicit. But I suspect that that's kind of the trend of his uh, uh, the trend of his thinking there. Um, yeah. But again, it's hard to... I mean, I'm tempted to dwell on this longer, but I don't want to dwell on this longer because it's not really fair. I mean, this is one short sentence, right? And to try to build an entire like theological structure on that one sentence would be 
uh, I think, inappropriate. Um, but again, to me, what I'm seeing here, um, I would suggest that he's pointing towards the same thing that he was t- towards. He is through talking about the incarnates and the marring and the atonement. I think he's pointing to the incarnation with a big capital I. Um, that is the incarnation of Jesus and uh, eventually and to, you know, the Christian you catastrophe. I think that that's what he's pointing to here. Um, but he's still pointing from afar off. And a lot of the a lot of the details of this are certainly not very clearly worked out. Um, all right. More on the perspective of the Eldar. True. Regret and sorrow come to the incarnate from love that is, for the duration of Arda, bound within time. Again, it's intrinsic. Regret and sorrow come to the incarnate from love that is, for the duration of Arda, bound within time. But decay and dissolution is not abhorrent solely because of this. Okay, so we're talking about, uh, like, decomposition and such, right? Okay. To speak of Olvar, that is, plants. The soil in which it springs has no part in it until it is taken up as food by the life of the growing thing and appears transformed into living and admirable form. The seed and the soil are clearly different. But at death, it is not the surrounding earth nor the ground upon which the dead thing falls that seems horrible. It is the material of the thing itself that, disintegrating, seems horrible. And in Arda Mard, this process may be long, Indeed, death may be slow, and even before all life has departed, the living thing may become sickly or deformed. We do not think that this sickening after and after it decay and putrescence can seem beautiful, as surely all things in Arda unmarred should be, or at least not regrettable, to any minds whatsoever that love Arda, whether free from time or bound therein. Right, so notice the question, like, so, okay... Remember this, they said a little bit earlier on that some things are designed to have a short lifespan, right? Um, on the one hand, they begin by asserting it is not true that in Arda Unmarred, in theory, right? In Arda Unmarred, everything would be immortal, right? They assert that that, that is untrue. That there are something who, by their some things which, whom by their nature, within the unmarred context of Arda, some things which by their nature have shorter lifespans, like plants and beasts. Um, you know, dandelions would not have continued blooming for all eternity uh, in Arda unmarred. Um, I know some gardeners might be thinking. In Arda and Mar, there wouldn't be any dandelions, but I, I understand. Anyway, um, I, but the point is, they're destined, like, it's part of their nature to have a lifespan, to live and to die, to live, to reproduce, to die. It's how it's supposed to be. So then they look at this and they're like, okay, but, but, but hang on. Does that mean there would have been dead and decaying things in Arda Unmarred? Surely not. Surely the repulsion that we feel when we look upon something that is decaying and putrescent is a sign that that's not how it was supposed to be. Right? And if not, 
then what would it have been? If death, in this sense, right, for the, for the you know, plants and animals and stuff, if plant and animal death would have been a part of the plan in Arda Unmarred, as they asserted, well then, how, how would that be? How could that be? Right? Um, so he said, we do not think that this sickening and after it decay and putrescence can seem beautiful or at least not regrettable. Again, like in theory, you'd have to be able to imagine that the slow death and decay first, you know, decrepitude and sickliness and sickening of an aged thing before it dies, and then after that, its decay and putrescence. That can't be a good thing, can it? That can't be how it was supposed to be? Um... Yeah, so, Arthur, I think what he's saying here, we do not think that this can seem beautiful, as surely all things in Arda Unmarred should be. We do not think that it can seem beautiful, or at least not regrettable. To any minds whatsoever that love Arda. So, Arthur, he seems to be rejecting the idea that, like, it seems to be I don't know, doubling down on the fact that putrescence, it ain't beautiful. And it wouldn't have been beautiful. In Arda Unmarred, it wouldn't have been beautiful. And so here's the conclusion. Therefore, we hold that death and decay in the kinds that we now see cannot be part of Arda Unmarred, in which we consider only natural death and the end of completed life, and not the deaths of violence. So again, like, we're assuming in Arda Unmarred, presumably things wouldn't be dying by violence in the same way, right? That, that's part of the marring, presumably. But, we, but even if you get rid of the idea of tragic death by violence, there's still natural death and the end of completed life, right? We still have the problem with decay and decomposition and whatever, right? And decrepitude and all that kind of thing. Okay, also, it may be thought that even those things that have by nature a short duration would in the health of Arda unmarred have lived longer and more completely. Okay, so, like, that would help a little bit, I guess, but that wouldn't necessarily. Um, So, they conclude, therefore, that death and decay in the kinds that we now see can't be a part of Arda unmarred. It must not have been that way, right? So there's this challenge to sort of guess uh, or imagine how things in Arda Unmarred would have been. Again, and it's a fascinating sort of imagination, isn't it? Because, again, the simplest thing to imagine is like, and there is no death. Nothing ever dies. Right? But this rejects that. And says, no, no, things still would reach their completion. Even if they lived longer and more completely, they come to the end of a completed life some things would still die. Um, there seems to be a, a, a rejection of the idea that all plants and animals would have been undying in Arda Unmarred. And so therefore, the only conclusion must be that death itself 
would have been different. It would not have been decayed. Um, Alyssa, I like the idea of uh, sort of instant dissolution, like the unbodying uh, in uh, Lewis's space trilogy. You remember the unbodying of uh, of the dead uh, in uh, Out of the Silent Planet that we talked about. Um, yeah, I wonder. I wonder. Um, yeah, Devorah was thinking the same thing. Yeah, possibly. Possibly. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, uh, Mr. Dennis, I totally agree. Um, I think that that's this is one of the reasons why they are insisting on this, right? Um, as uh, Mr. Dennis says, without some form of death, would there still be room for the beauty of birth and growth? It'd be a very crowded place. Yes, I think that's exactly why there needs to be that. It sounds really nice to kind of vaguely wave your hand and say, oh, yes, and nothing would suffer and nothing would die and everything would live eternal. But then in the end, you just get stasis, right? Nothing is born. Nothing grows. Um, and that's, is that better at the end of the day? I'm not sure that is better. Um, or at least I'm not sure that that's exactly, um, especially since not only the, not only growth itself, but birth, the transmission of life seems to be a big part of the whole pattern, right? Um, and therefore would have been missed, I think. Um, the pattern would have been much less complete. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. A fascinating contemplation. Okay, uh, on, hang on a second, let me just, yeah, all right. On this subject, uh, that is of the death of uh, short-lived creatures, how about uh, elves and vegetarianism, right? Um, I find this paragraph delightful. It would seem a wise conclusion that death, or the ending of living things of short duration, is now otherwise in Ardemard than it might have been, and it has been marred in special by Melkor, for he desires ever new things and loves nothing that has been or already is. And at first he recked not how things were removed to make room for others, but came at last in his hatred and despite of all things, even those which he himself devised, to rejoice in their defilement. On the other hand, the incarnate cannot rightly conceive of Arda unmarred in this matter of death, for they in their begetting by Eru belong to Arda marred. This whole idea, they cannot, literally cannot imagine what Arda unmarred could be like. They are, they have Arda marred in their, you know, in their bones, right? In their DNA. And this is most clearly seen herein. They are, as it were, the heirs and participators in death by violence. They cannot live without causing the death or ending untimely of living things that have corporeal life. They cannot live without causing the death or ending untimely of living things that have corporeal life. Some of the Eldar and some men eschew the slaying of Kelvar, that is animals, to use their bodies as meat, feeling that these bodies, resembling in different degrees their own, are in some ways too near akin. Yet none of the Eldar hold that the eating of flesh, not being the flesh of the incarnate and hallowed by the indwelling of the Thea, is sinful or against the will of Eru. But even so, they must kill and eat Olvar or die. For it is their nature to be fed, as to the Hroar, 
by living things corporeal, and things have a right to live according to their nature. Yet violence is done to the Olvar, which have a kinship with the bodies of the incarnate, be it remote, and these are denied the fulfillment of their own lives and final shapes. Therefore we must hold that the incarnate belong by nature to Arda Mard, and to a world in which death and death by violence of others is accepted. Neither elves nor men eat willingly things that have not died by violence. Such as roadkill, right? I guess they have died by violence, but uh, anyway, like you don't come across something that just dropped dead in the woods and eat it, generally, right? Um, neither elves nor men willingly eat things that have not died by violence. Um, you don't wait until things die of decrepitude, right, in their advanced old age, and then eat them, usually. Um, now, here's what I really love about this paragraph. Um, I've always thought it... So, first of all, it's the whole vegetarian elves thing, right? This is partly a Peter Jacksonism. Or at least it was another one of those things that was strongly reinforced by the Peter Jackson films. Um, but this is, even apart from the Peter Jackson films, I have always found and always been slightly surprised to find, in some ways surprised, in some ways not, that many Tolkien fans all seem to assume that elves must be vegetarian. That, like, the idea of, you know, that elves living in touch with nature would never kill animals in order to eat them. Right. And again, this idea seemed to be, you know, confirmed. Um, I, Peter Jackson seemed to avail himself of this sentiment. You think, I'm thinking, of course, especially in the Hobbit films of the uh, dwarves in Rivendell and such. Um, but um, anyway, uh, this is the idea of elves killing animals and eating them seems appalling to many people. It just seems to like be absolutely contrary uh, to their views of elves. And I've always argued against this. I've always said, look, we, you have, we have to acknowledge that elves hunt in... I mean, we, we get elves hunting on many occasions, um, especially in The Hobbit. Um, but um, we even get elves explicitly cooking meat uh, in The Hobbit, for that matter, in the description of the feasts of the Elven King, right, and his people. Um, but, um, uh, but certainly the elves hunt. Um, but here's the thing that always bothered me about this, uh, to, uh, some extent. Um, the thing that always bothered me to, about it is that it seemed a very, in a sense, a very un-Tolkienian idea, or rather to fall prey to exactly the kind of thinking that Tolkien himself always fought against. And that is blind bias in favor of animals and against plants. Right? Remember, of course, the famous letter where he says he's always considered himself a defender of plants, um, uh, a lover of plants, and a defender of plants. Um, if, uh, you know, Tolkien was like a plants' rights activist... Um, and so, therefore, I've always I've always thought that whenever I've asked people who had the mental image, right, that elves in Tolkien must be vegetarians, whenever I've asked them why, why do you believe that elves in Tolkien are vegetarians, they've always responded with some 
version of like uh, you know again like elves are at peace with their environment and and like they're in touch with nature and and would not would not just go out and kill things and then eat them. But what about plants? So they're vegetarians, but they don't have any problem going out and killing plants and eating them. Um, and you know, whenever I've said that, people have laughed at me. Often have laughed at me. Like, oh, that's not the same, isn't it? How is it not the same? How is it not the same? Especially to somebody like Tolkien, who considered himself a defender of plants, right? And who spoke against exactly that kind of bias. Oh, the lives of plants don't matter, right? Uh, lives of animals, those are precious. And to slay an animal in order to eat it, it, it would be horrible. But to kill a plant and then eat it, that's fine. They're, that's absolutely completely different. No, it isn't different. And he, and so I've always, I've always thought this. I've, I've sometimes tried to argue this. Um, and so reading this paragraph, I was like, there it is. <laughs> there it is. That's exactly it. Even so, they must kill and eat Olvar or die. Um, and that's, that is still because of their nature to be fed by living things corporeal. Violence is done to the Olvar, and these are denied the fulfillment of their own lives and final shapes. You may think when you are harvesting lettuce that you are, you know, living in harmonious, you know, tune with your environment. Tell it to the lettuce, right? Uh, <laughs> tell that to the lettuce. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, the Olvar, um, the Olvar and Kelvar alike. And again, this is not to say that, like, it's wrong. What he's saying is they're on practically equal footing. Now, notice he says there are some vegetarian elves and men, right? Baron, we know, was became a vegetarian, right? Um, he's the only human I can think of offhand in the Silmarillion who is like explicitly, we're explicitly told, becomes a vegetarian um, because of his friendship with the animals. Um, but again, notice what he says about the, ve the vegetarianism of some of the Eldar and some men. Some of them eschew the slang of Kelvar to use their bodies as meat. Why? Because they feel that their bodies because of the similarity of the of their bodies, right? The meat of their bodies is like the meat of my body, and so therefore, it's, it's too near akin, right? It's like marrying your first cousin, you know. Yeah, it just kind of gives them the creeps, right? Um, but notice how he, he immediately asserts, none of the Eldar, even those who choose to be vegetarian, hold that the eating of flesh is sinful or against the will of Eru. It's not wrong to eat meat. Even those who are vegetarian do not believe that it is wrong. They choose not to because they don't like it, right? They don't want to do that. But they wouldn't argue that it's wrong to do that because there is still a difference. Um, and sentience doesn't ent enter into it. You'll notice that. I saw somebody talking about sentience. Um, the question of uh, um, the question of sentience 
is not an issue here, right? Notice what is the issue. Both plants and animals have bodies. They have Hoar, and their Hoar are like our Hoar to varying degrees. And he, they, you know, they, he admits that the Ovar are less like us, right? Their bodies are less like our bodies. The animals are more similar, have bodies that are more similar to ours. But that's not where the dividing line is. There is a dividing line, right? But notice where the dividing line is, and it's not about sentience exactly. It is about the, f- or maybe you could say it is in different vocabulary. It's about the fea, right? Um, the eating of flesh, not being the flesh of the incarnate and hallowed by the indwelling of the fea. There you go, right? When there's a fea indwelling that proa, then is that proa hallowed, made holy by the indwelling of the fea. Cannibalism, definitely sinful. Definitely sinful. Um, to eat the flesh of any incarnate creature that had a fea in it, definitely against the will of Eru. Animals, plants, totally fine. Totally fine. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so, <laughs> uh, yeah. And I just, I love the consistency of this. I love the consistency of this. I've always, as I say, it's, it's always kind of bothered me. Um, and I, but I've never been able to prove it. You know, I never had a, I never had a thing I could point to before. Um, when I was trying to make this argument, and everyone always thought this argument was really weak when I made it before, um, but I, I never thought it was, um, and uh, and therefore I'm going to be glad to be able to turn to this page of the nature of Middle Earth uh, and uh, uh, try to explain that here. Um, yeah, as far as its relationship to orcs, I see people talking about orcs. Um, I think the only relevance to orcs necessarily, I mean, explicit relevance, is that it's a sign of how horrible they are, right? That they will eat the flesh. Uh, I mean, I think that it is it is exactly this uh, taboo, right? It's exactly this, you know, fundamental breaking of the will of Eru um, that we should feel and hear when you know, Ugluk starts talking about man's, gives us man's flesh. The idea that Saruman gives them man's flesh to eat, right? Um, that is, I, that sentence, it's like one of the most horrible things um, ever said about Saruman in The Lord of the Rings. I mean, that's one of the most damning sentences in all of The Lord of the Rings about Saruman himself. Um, I don't think the very most um, but, uh, um, but way up there, way up there. So the orcs can, will, do cross that line and eat the flesh of incarnates hallowed by the indwelling of the Fea. Um, also Gollum. Um, Gollum stealing and eating babies, for instance is a plain sign of how far over the line Gollum is, right? Um, 
he's far, far over the line, and that's a pretty clear that's a pretty a pretty clear indicator in indicator I think, um, yeah yeah um, okay, but backing up from the mere vegetarian question, um, do you see? the really powerful thing that he's saying here about how deeply at home both elves and humans are in Artemart. You can see, like, they cannot survive without slaying and eating other living things. None of them can. Nobody can. It's how it happens. It's how it works. Um, it is intrinsic to how we're designed. Eru designed incarnates for Arda Mard. Um, this is the way we are and the way we go. Um, and uh, yeah, Everett, I can see your question. Yes, you can post questions there. Um, so anyway, that's and that's a that's a pretty radical thing. Again, that you know, there's no, oh, things used to be good, but now things have gotten bad with Artemard. No, no, we're we're designed for this. We're we're all we're completely designed for this. Which means, of course, by the way, um, it suggests something about Arda healed, right? If we're gonna we're we're we know Arda unmarred is gone, and no incarnate will ever see Arda unmarred, but Arda can still be healed. There might still be Arda remade down the road, right? And if we get um, to Arda Remade, there's going to be some uh, serious renovation that's going to be needed, right? Uh, things are going to be different, uh, including what are we going to eat for lunch? I don't know. <laughs> right? I don't know what we're going to eat for any breakfast uh, uh, in Arda Healed, right? Um it's one of the things that, uh, you know, becomes a really open and interesting question. Um, speaking of orcs, were you thinking about that too when you were reading this passage? The rare cases are those where Sundrance that is so we're talking about Sundrance again still between the body and the and the soul, right? The Fea and the Hroa. The rare cases are those where Sundrance has happened in Amon where there is no decay. So the body is still around, body's undecayed, but the fea is gone. Like Muriel is the classic example of this in, in, in Amon, right? Also others more horrible. Okay, so there's the Muriel instance, which is strange and creates all kinds of issues, but, um, uh, but there are others that are more horrible than that, right? For it is recorded in the histories that Morgoth and Sauron after him would drive out the Thea by terror and then feed the body and make it a beast. Oh, okay. So you can... I, and this is where I, We've got to be thinking about orcs here, right? Is this a solution to the orc problem? The problem with orcs has always been in the Thear, Right? Morgoth does not have the power to alter the nature of the Fear. So if 
the fear if somebody has unwill, right? You can't violate it. If somebody's fear, if you've got free will, you know, whatever, even if they give themselves up, they're still going to have kids who will have free will and you have to do it again. Right. Um, the, and the, so the idea of like heritable enslavement. And then, of course, there's the question of what happens to their fear after death. Right. These are the these are the big questions about like the things that make the orc problem the big problem that it is. Right. You can imagine ways in which orcs are sorry, in which elves or men could potentially be corrupted in some way so as to produce an orc in a given case. Right. But does Morgoth, does Sauron, have the power to change the programming, right? To, to, to alter the very nature of the Fea itself as Eru created it. That's why the orc problem is such a big problem. So let's do an end around that problem. Just ditch the Fear entirely, right? Just kick the Fear out and keep the Hroar, and now you've got a, an army of orcs with no Fear at all. They're just bodies. Oh, man. So, by terror, you force the Fea to flee, but the body's still alive. Right? Body's still functional. And you feed it. You keep it going, the body. Right? Now you've got something to work with. Now you've got your perfect slave. So, remember what orcs were originally. Orcs were constructs. They were not. They did not have free will. They did not have thought. They were just constructs. And they were like animated by hatred. Right? And then, of course, he ran into the theological problem, yeah, but evil can't create. So they can't really make a race of constructs like that. Um, so, hey, solution. This would result. And yes, they would be like zombies or Tarlonio more like zomborks, I agree. Um, the zomborks... And I know there was some talk about Zomborks before. I think that, you know, this kind of idea he was talking about a bit in uh, Morgoth's Ring as well when we were looking at the orc options there. Um, but um, uh, anyway, this is this is attractive. I mean, it's horrible, but it's attractive as a solution potentially to the orc problem. But it's not a perfect solution. Or worse, he would daunt the Fea within the body and reduce it to impotence and then nourish the body foully so that it became bestial to the horror and torment of the Thea. Okay, so so he's got sort of two different versions here. The second one is merely a description of how, like, uh, you know, that sentence in the published Silmarillion about um, by, like, a slow work of torment, uh, the, uh, you know, the elves become corrupted and, and it's, you know, we're not told how, right? The curtain is drawn over what happens to the elves and then, but out the other side of that horrible and unspeakable process come orcs, right? Um, that latter sentence sounds like a, a, like a commentary on what that would look like, right? What exactly, not what exactly did he do, like what precisely was the process? We're not being given a set of instructions here, but rather a description of what it would be. Right to daunt the fair, so daunt the fair within the body and reduce it to impotence, that it would then nourish the body, and, and then you nourish the body foully, so that it would become bestial to the horror and torment of the fair. That sounds like the corrupted elves or humans, whichever he decides, as he was leaning towards humans later on. Um, that latter does not seem to me to solve the problem. 
Um, you can horrify and torment the Fea all you want. That doesn't mean you can overcome the unwill. That that problem still remains, right? Um, not to mention the... I mean, so, again, if you want to solve the orc problem, the beautiful thing about orcs, which are, of course wholly unlovely, so I know that's an ironic thing to say, but the beautiful thing about the orc concept, the reason that he was struggling to keep it, to find a way to keep it, even after the theological adjustments, is that it, the orcs are perfect enemies. Right? To have these construct creatures of Morgoth, who are merely an expression of his hatred, um, upon whom you need have no pity, um, there is no question of separating the sin and the sinner. There is no question of, like, should we seek their amendment or redemption? Do they need deliverance rather than destruction? Um, they are... Um, and, and instead, you get the sort of liberating situation. It's okay to hate the orcs. right? It's okay merely to uh, count how many of them you've killed and glory in that. Right? Like at the Battle of Helm's Deep. Um, and if the orcs... If there's any question that the orcs might be themselves victims and objects of pity, then you can no longer think of them that way. Then they lose their sort of um, quasi... Uh, quasi-allegorical um, force if you see what I mean. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, that's the orc problem, in a nutshell. So that second one, the daunting of the Fea, doesn't seem to me like a real solution. It's just, just like another way of stating the orc problem, really. But that first one now, the Zombork solution, right? Um, driving out the Fea entirely, and then you've just got this body. And then you might say, well, how does the body move around and do anything? Uh, by the will of Morgoth. That's what we know. Remember? In the Lord of the Rings. What happens at the Black Gate? After that awesome sentence? You know, from all his policies and webs of fear. From all, you know, the mind of Sauron shook free. And what happens? What happens on the battlefield at the Black Gate? when suddenly 100% of the focus of the mind of Sauron is directed at the cracks of doom. The orcs stand there. No. They're, okay, they don't quite wind down like marionettes, right? But they stand there and they're like blinking. They, they don't know what to do. And when Sauron is destroyed, they like run around in circles or cast themselves into pits or kill themselves like they... They they don't have any will of their own. Um, their wills are the will. Sauron is controlling them like puppets, more like puppets than merely like slaves. Um, so that would work. That would work. This first salute, the Zomborg solution is almost the perfect solution. There's only uh, one problem. There's only one weakness to the Zombork solution. And that's um, 
that's uh, that's reproduction, right? Reproduction in general, like would they be able to reproduce? You know, I mean, and if they did, what would their babies be like? Would their babies be born without fear? Just because their own fear had been driven out of their bodies? That seems uncertain to me. And of course, there's a bigger question. It's not just like, would they be fertile or not? It's also the question of, remember, they have to survive independently for centuries. Like during the Second Age and the first part of the Third Age. Right. I mean, there's some um, there are some serious interregnum periods, right, when nobody is dominating and ruling over the arcs, and they're just left doing their own thing, right. Um, could Zomborks do that? Right. I mean, if they're just corpses, animated corpses. And not corpses, because they're not dead. But, yeah, I don't... I don't know. I don't know. Um, Yeah, exactly, First Fish. Eru is the source of all fear, right? So he would be implicitly... If the offspring have fear, then he would be blessing that, right? Um... Yeah, it's um, it's strange. They could, Arthur, I suppose, have zombie babies. Uh, that is true, uh, perhaps in theory, but I'm not really sure. Um, but um, yeah. Now again, this is one sentence, right? So uh, I, you know, he doesn't spell out all of the implications. I just I got to this parenthetical and was like, wait a second, hey. You know, in this context of thinking about the separation of the Fea and the Hroa, that's that idea might have legs, right? You could maybe do something with that. It's hard, like it's not perfect. It's not a perfect solution. Again, there's the the big problem of of uh, of uh, you know, uh, I was just about to say regeneration. That's quite the wrong word. Procreation, um, and of dwelling independently, presumably as some kind of society, um, but. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and there are other potential problems. Like, like again, if you've got, if they have no, I mean, if they really would, like, if Melkor stops thinking about them, right, stops and, you know, they would just sag, right? Then why didn't they all do that, you know, at the end of the first stage uh, when he's cast out into outer darkness? Um, I, 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 yeah. There are problems. Uh, there are problems. Um, but um, I, I don't think there are wholly insoluble problems. I still think this strikes me as one of my... This is one of my two favorite solutions to the orc problem. Um, neither are perfect solutions. But this one, I think, has, uh, has, some, has some potential. It has some potential. Okay. I love this. 
It is known to the Eldar that the Fear of men, many or all they do not know, go also to the halls of waiting and the keeping of Namo Mendos. But what is there their fate, and whither they go when Namo releases them, the Eldar have no sure knowledge. And men knowing little say many different things, some of which are fantasies of their own devising and are darkened by the shadow. The wisest of men, and those least under the shadow, believe that they are surrendered to Eru and pass out of Ea, for which reason many of the elves in later days, under the burden of their years, envied the death of men and called it the gift of Iluvatar. I love this. Here's why I love this. In the Ainulindale, when death is called the gift of Iluvatar for the first time, basically, that's where most of us are introduced to the concept of death as the gift of Iluvatar. It sounds, um, I don't know, insensitive, right? It sounds uh, ignorant, frankly. Uh, and of course, that's exactly what the drama of the Athrobeth is, right? When in, in the Athrobeth, we finally get a human interlocutor who calls them on that. And is like, yeah, I know that the Eldar called death the gift of Iluvatar to men, but that's just because they're ignorant morons who are self-absorbed. She just lays into him, right? Like, this is a sign of how little you understand, right? You are speaking of what you do not know. Um, I've heard you guys say that, right? And please, right? Um, You know, so we finally get this, like, human rebuttal to that sort of elvish perspective. Um, and, uh, yeah, yeah. So, okay. Um, remember, this is just, remember one thing, cause I, I keep throwing this out there because this was such a huge moment for me. Um, remember that the Ainulindale was written as a speech given by an elf to a human, right? It was, there was explicitly a dialogue frame dialogue to the Ainulindale. And the speaker of the Ainulindale is not the narrator, right? Speaking in a voice like Martin Shaw's, right? Instead, it was an elf telling the story and how they understood it to humans. To a, a human, right? Uh, to Alfwina. And um, therefore, confessedly biased and uncertain about some things, right? And that when the business about the death of men being called the gift of Iluvatar was included in that moment in the Ainulindale, it was explicitly the elf saying, this is how we look at it, right? Kind of seems this way to us, right? Not an authoritative narrator voice, right, saying that. Um, Notice how it's being recontextualized here, right? Why do the elves call it that? Why, from the elvish point of view, does death look like the gift of Iluvatar? Again, I just, uh, the fact that he's here kind of like reinvesting that, and again, that decision, the decision to remove that frame from the Anulindalite, that was a Christopher Tolkien decision. That's on my top three, probably, list of editorial decisions I could wish Christopher Tolkien hadn't made. It sounds so ungrateful. I hate to complain about Christopher Tolkien's work. (laughs) It's it's so ungrateful. But nevertheless, there it is. If there were, you know, if there were a couple things that I could say, please don't do that, 
that would have been one of them to remove the frame from the island away. But um, anyway, okay, okay. Um, not only though is this does this passage here reinvest that concept with that context that we're seeing this explicitly as an expression of the elvish perspective on human death, right? But we're given two other points of context for it, right? Um, which I think, in my mind, um, uh, changes things. And, JJ, thank you for quoting the line there from the Aina Lindale. Um, uh, Death is their fate, the gift of Iluvatar, which as time wears, even the powers shall envy. We do get that little bit at the end. Notice how much more of that note that we get here. How much more that's explained. Why is it that the power, even the power, shall envy it down the road? Here we get it contextualized a little bit more again from that elvish perspective. There are two reasons why, from where the elves are sitting, death looks like a gift from Iluvatar to men, even though it doesn't seem that way to them, right? Don't say that to Andreth or smile when you say that to Andreth. Um, but the, uh, the answer is first, the wisest of men and those least under the shadow believe that they are surrendered to Eru and pass out of Ea. The passing out of Ea Because of their... So the elves have Estelle. They have hope, right? They believe firmly in the goodness of Eru, right? And when they see that these spirits of men are being taken outside of Ea, they know that this must be because Eru is taking them. And because of their trust for Eru... They believe this is clearly. They don't know what happens to humans, but they believe that this must be a good thing, right? And under the burden of their years, they come to envy the death of men. Continual life, as long as the um, life of Arda is no picnic, right? Um, and as they feel the burden of their own memories, which are full of sorrow, and which in the end, remember, they're fair consuming their hoar and their their like memories are what they have left, right? At the end, they're invisible memories now, right? Um, uh, that removal looks increasingly like a mercy. Again, especially in the context of their Estelle, right? The context of their of their faith, of their hope uh, in the goodness of Eru. Um, so, um, yeah, yeah. Um, this is it just, it's just to me a, a very much more satisfyingly contextualized uh, treatment of why the elves consider the death of men the gift of Iluvatar. Uh, and I find that really satisfying. Oh, sorry, I wanted to go back and answer um, uh, Everett, you had asked a, a really interesting question, and I missed it at the time. Um, so I want to I just pause for a second and come back to it. Um, 
Though, I should warn you in advance, Everett, you're going to be disappointed by my answer. <laughs> but it's a great question, so I'll ask it, because it's worth asking anyway. Uh, and Everett's question was, it was back to the question of, uh, uh, it, was the, it was the in the context of the vegetarianism stuff, um, and thinking specifically about... Uh, what flesh you can and can't eat and the flesh that has been hallowed by the uh, indwelling of the fair, right? And so he asks very sensibly, what about, um, uh, what about talking birds? What about the talking bird? Like, as, uh, as he says, um, um, presumably, Bilbo couldn't have just killed and eaten Roach, son of Kark, right? Um, Great question. Really fascinating question. Um, My disappointing answer is I have no idea. Of course, it's always hard with The Hobbit. It's always hard with The Hobbit. Because um, if you... um, If you were to sort of chart, right? Uh, Create a graph... um, in which, see what well, I'm going through math with withdrawal too, JJ. Um, if you were to make a graph, right, and have a, you know, plot things on an axis with increasing levels of internal consistency of the narrative, right, or like increasing emphasis on the importance of internal consistency in the narrative uh, in Tolkien's works, um, you have, um, like, uh, The Lord of the Rings is near the end of that, right? Near the, near the, 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 the high end of the importance that he placed upon really working out the details. And, and of course, then increasingly, um, the Silmarillion material. I mean, I would actually put his theoretical begun revision of the Silmarillion, the stuff we've been looking at in this, I would put that beyond the Lord of the Rings even, because the Lord of the Rings still does, as Anna points out, thinking foxes and stuff, right? And I, I, I assume you're also thinking, would it be okay to kill the thinking fox? Yeah, I agree. Um, but, um, uh, or to kill and eat, I, I, I should say, the, the thinking fox. Um, but, uh, yeah, okay, so the Lord of the Rings is pretty far down that line. I think this Silmarillion stuff, this stuff that he's doing, like almost everything that we've been reading in this book is even further beyond it, right? He's trying to take that direction and, and, and continue it. Right. And on the other end of the spectrum, um, like the very other, the, 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 at the lowest end of the spectrum would be things like, um, the poem, the adventures of Tom Bombadil. I put at a, maybe at the very low end. Um, I would put uh, farmer Giles of ham pretty low on this list. Right, pretty low on that spectrum, right on that on that axis. Um, I put the Hobbit pretty low on that, um, as far as how much he was emphasizing internal consistency, especially of world building. The Hobbit's pretty low. Um, there are a whole lot of things in the Hobbit that he kind of chucks in there. I mean it wasn't even part of this world. You know, he wasn't really doing world building. He was telling a fairy tale. Um, He was writing a fairy tale which included 
a whole bunch of elements that he really loved, some of which he was pirating from his own work, some of which he was pirating from, you know, Beowulf and Norse mythology and all kinds of other places, right? Um, but uh, but still, still at the end of the day, um, it was a fairy tale and not very much... I mean, there's you can see a lot of places where he's not really placing a high emphasis on internal consistency and it doesn't hold together nearly as well as the Lord of the Rings or some other things. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, exactly. First, this is why he did so much retconning of the Hobbit when it became necessary for consistency. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. He, he had a, a, a high, um, left a lot of work for himself, <laughs> right? When he decided, uh, later on to bring it in. Um, I would put, by the way, his early mythology, like the Book of Lost Tales, I would put it um, sort of, I would give it a higher value on the axis than The Hobbit. I think he was being more consistent, but still way below The Lord of the Rings. Um, uh, anyway, so uh, there's... Uh, but Everett, this is not me answering your question. This is me explaining why I can't answer your question. Um, because I'm not... Con- think about think about The Lord of the Rings. Um, do we see... Where do we see examples or reasons to believe that there are beasts in The Lord of the Rings that have fair? I, I agree. It's an open question. The ravens, the... Swallow, not the swallow, the swallow, <laughs> a swallow. No, uh, the thrush, right? The thrush. Um, boy, am I tired. Um, the uh, <laughs> getting the Hobbit and Monty Python confused. You know, it's been a long day. Um, the uh, uh, the the wargs themselves, right? The spiders. I mean, like it's, uh, it's not at all, it's not at all clear, right? Um, but notice how a lot of that gets smoothed out. Um, in the Lord of the Rings, we we get very little um, along those lines. Um, now I think um, Everett, it's very likely when we think about Shadowfax, for instance, Shadowfax is an excellent candidate. But notice how he still doesn't cross those lines. Shadowfax doesn't talk. Um, now I, I, somebody's going to say, "Hey, didn't Shadowfax ancestor Faleroff know the speech of men?" Yeah, I know, I know. I know. Um, uh, there's a potential. There's a question there. The Mayaris. Do they have fair? Do they have fair? Maybe. They're an unknown question. The Eagles. Well, the Eagles are clearly in a different category, right? The fact that the Eagles are still the same, are still talking birds, right? We don't get thrushes. We don't get, now, you know, Birds and beasts have their own secret tongues, and Gandalf might be able to speak into them, according to Frodo's song, right? Um, but just because you can communicate with an animal doesn't necessarily mean that it has a fea, I think. I don't think it does. Um, I'm a little uncertain about this, but I don't think so. So I don't even think the thinking fox necessarily has a, has a, has a, has a fea, um, necessarily. But, um, yeah, yeah. Um, um, so, yeah, well, uh, we, I, I, it's, a, it's a little bit unclear. 
But again, you can see how how much less muddy those lines are in the Lord of the Rings than in the Hobbit, right? He's he's uh, he's thinking about that a lot more. And even if you think of those, which might be examples, um, Shadowfax, the Mayoris in general, right? Um, the Eagles. It's either obvious, as in the case of the Eagles, that they are in a different category, or again, the Mayoris. It's also pretty good. There's a category. There's a category difference there too, right? Arad might be Legolas's friend, according to Legolas, right? Um, but he's not the same as Shadowfax. He's not in the same situation as Shadowfax. Um, but um, anyway, anyway, um, yeah. So uh, um, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Cecilia, you're right. Cecilia's thinking about the passage um, that we're just about to get to next week in Exploring the Lord of the Rings, in which Bill the Pony swished his tail and said nothing. Right? Um, I love that. Uh, I love that line. But anyway. Um, so yeah. Answer, it's complicated. I don't know. So that's that's a... Did you ever notice that the, uh, the less I know the answer to a question, the longer it takes me to answer it? <laughs> That's a that's a pretty that's a pretty solid correlation. Anyway, all right, okay, okay. Um, let's start with light and darkness, which means we're starting part three. Just wanted to point out that we did in fact finish part two this week. Like some of you are probably doubting we would. The words for night, twilight, day were originally governed by the primitive Quendian imagination of the passage of the sun, and also by their imagination of light. Now, so keep in mind, there are a couple things going on here. Of course, all of this, as so is so often the case, is in a linguistic context, right? As Tolkien is talking about the uh, uh, the meanings of different roots and uh, 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 you know the the sort of the concepts that lie behind them. Um, but. Um, Remember that there are kind of two things going on here. On the one hand, we're getting, we're learning more about how they think about light and darkness. <clears throat> but we're getting that in an explicitly round world context. Um, this is also part of the overall project. Notice that he's now baking it back into the into his invented languages themselves, right? He's baking back into that the idea that the sun has been around from the beginning, right? From when they first awoke. It happened to be down when they awoke, right? Um, but uh, but it was around. Um, and the, the sun's always been. Since, you know, Arda has been. Um, <clears throat> so, um, yeah. Okay. Um, so this is part of part of all that their imagination of light. This they thought of as a substance, ever the most tenuous and ethereal of all things, an emanation from self-luminous, light-giving things, such as fire on earth and the sun in heaven in particular, that continued or could continue in existence after issuing from its source, unless quenched, swallowed, or extinguished by dark. So swallowed, in quotation marks there, um, as if to say, like, that's, that's like the concept that they would use, right? When, when they would, um, so quenched is a metaphor that the author, you know, the, the, the scribe, presumably Pengaloth, right, uh, offers. Um, 
but the quotation around swallowed suggests that that's like the more uh, sort of native metaphor, right? Um, that they would use of what, how, you know, see, light is a substance which is emitted and it's there until it's swallowed or extinguished by dark. Dark was also a substance, only less tenuous than light, but was incalculably more abundant and prevalent than light. Light substance was called lingue, quenya lingue. Dark substance was called fuine. Okay. Um, on the one hand, this stuff is perfectly consistent with what we see in the Silmarillion. Especially in the Silmarillion. Right? We see this kind of thing all the time. Um, the trees, certainly, were self-luminous, light-giving things. Right? And what happened? What happened to the light? The light stuff that got emitted from the trees. What happened to it? They collected it in vats, right? It was it was collected together into a liquid substance, which was kept in a tub, a couple tubs, right? Big tubs, swimming pools of liquid light. This idea of light as a substance is there is implicit in many places in the Silmarillion especially, um, as is the idea of dark, unlight as a substance. And of course here I'm thinking especially of Ungoliant. It is, un- it is with Ungoliant that we see this most clearly, most pointedly. But notice how also it's implied. So on the one hand, we get a quasi-naturalistic explanation of the defense against light, both from Morgoth in the north and from Sauron in Mordor, um, both by the same naturalistic mechanism, right? Volcanic eruption leading to clouds of ash, which create this pall of cloud which uh, protects against the light, right? Um, That's... um, It's easy to get sort of fixated on the sort of naturalistic explanation and forget or overlook the fact that the actual language used to describe it, especially, especially the shadow of Sauron stretching over the sky, um, I think a lot of people really kind of sees onto the purely natural, as if it's merely clouds that, that are covering the sky. Um, and yet, I think it's clearly not the case. Um, when I read this about the substance of darkness, that is, I think, clearly what we are seeing happening. Like, is... Are volcanic emissions involved as well? Yes, I do think 
that they're also involved. Um, but think of the fundamental metaphor that the shadow is in the Lord of the Rings. Um, think of all the language of, you know, covering the world with a second darkness, right? Um, we can hear persistently behind all of that language this idea of darkness as a positive thing, as a substance of its own, not merely the absence of light. And of course, we encounter it in Shelob's lair. Um, not surprisingly, right, in the daughter of Ungoliant. Um, but, um, but yes, JJ, the implication is that Sauron absolutely could make a flash dark. Uh, that in a lighted room, you could shine your darkness around. That's kind of what Sauron is doing, right? Um, in the Dawnless Day. Uh, emitting this dark, this darkness, which obscures the light, which destroys the light. And of course, as we can see, also has a um, spiritual impact as well, right? Not just a merely uh, physical. It's not merely physical darkness, right? And again, that is even more pointedly and specifically um, the war between light and darkness. Concrete light and concrete darkness is even more dramatically illustrated in Shelob, right? The darkness of Shelob's lair. And then think about light. Think of how the light enters into her eye sockets, right? Um, again, the, the the language, the metaphors used there characterize the light as inv- like stabbing into her like a blade, right? Um, and again, it seems like just metaphor, unless it's kind of not just a metaphor. At least, it's not how the elves think of it. Um, and um, I think... This is fascinating. So on the one hand, so as I say, I have two reactions to this. One is that that when you kind of think back over the language of light and darkness in the Silmarillion, in the Lord of the Rings, I can't help. I just like, I'm, I'm nodding. I'm like, yeah, okay, I can see that. I can see how this concept, this deep concept informs that language steers those, even if they are metaphorical, that's the metaphor that's being used, right? Again and again. Um, and, but here's the other thing that I think. Um, theologically, what? <laughs> what? Um, I say theologically because remember one of his big premises, right, that he won't budge from, the theological premise that he won't budge from, which creates the orc problem, is that evil cannot create, right? That evil, which, you know, this, derived from this, you know, old Augustinian idea that evil is not a positive thing. Evil is just a corruption. Only, evil doesn't exist, have existence in itself. It is merely the twisting or perversion of a thing which is good, that all things, in as much as things are created, they are created good. They might get twisted, right? They might be uh, corrupted. They might be misapplied. 
um, but they're not. Nothing is intrinsically evil, and of course there are places where we clearly see that echoed, um, that theological concept echoed through the Lord of the Rings. Right? Nothing is evil in the beginning. Even Sauron was not so, says Elrond. Right? That's the idea. Right? Um, now, the um, the first example, like the the most fundamental illustration of this theological principle is light and darkness, right? Uh, that there is no such thing, that darkness is not a positive substance. It is merely the absence of light. And so when you shine light into a dark room, you are not banishing a substance from the room. But light is a positive thing. Right? Light is a positive thing. Darkness is not a positive thing. Right? Again, that's that idea is so, like, has been for so long tied to that whole concept of the good being a positive thing and evil not being a positive thing, that it's it's become almost hard for me to distinguish them. And so then here, this way, it feels jarring to me. This feels jarring to me. The idea of positive darkness. Um, It isn't exactly a theological problem. I don't think it's really a theological problem. Um... It's not a violation of that theological principle in itself that darkness should be a substance. But it so undermines this like, deep illustration of that that I have a hard time with it. Uh, it feels like a theological violation, even if it's not, if you see what I mean. Um, but notice, by the way, there is a theological implication of this, which is very interesting. And that is that darkness is good. Right? If nothing is evil in the beginning, if evil cannot create, but can only corrupt and destroy, and all created things as things, like, you know, in as much as they are created substances, given being and substance by Iluvatar, then darkness also must be good. And that bears some thinking about. Um, That's an interesting thing. Um, I'm not quite sure what to do with it, (laughs) frankly. But I think that that's... uh, um, I think that that's interesting. I think that's a very interesting... uh, a very interesting idea. Um... Yeah, JJ, I do agree. JJ's thinking about it says it fits with my own story for Ungoliant's potential origin. Yes, exactly. Um Ungoliant and her unlight has always been a kind of problem for me for this exact reason, right? Um but if we start with the idea that darkness as a substance is itself good or potentially good, like in its origin is a good thing, then having a gloom weaver who has unfortunately become corrupted, right? Um, but she would have been the gloom weaver from the beginning, but that would have been good. That would have been a good thing. Um, I don't know what her job was kind of meant to do. Um, 
but uh, yeah. And so I don't know. Like I said, I'm not sure. I haven't myself. I need to think through this a lot more and to think about what that means. But I agree, JJ, that it does immediately make Ungoliant fit a lot better, doesn't it? Um, it certainly makes it easier to think about Ungoliant's origin story. Um, and I think that that's... I think that that's interesting. All right, I'm going to... Oh, what's next? Oops, no, I definitely don't want to go there. Okay, yeah, we're definitely not going to get to mytho-astronomy. We'll do mytho-astronomy next week. Okay, yeah, all right. <laughs> yeah, uh, I was just peeking ahead to see, like, is there a short thing I could do? Before? No, no, there's just not. Okay, we'll do mytho-astronomy next time. Uh, thanks, everybody, for joining me. Um, look forward to continued discussion next week as we go through uh, book three. Let's, uh, let's go through chapter seven. We've got a bunch of really short chapters, um, so let's go through, uh, go through chapter seven uh, for next time. Let me just confirm... There, oh, that's the founding of Nargothrond. Yeah, yeah, I think it fairly unlikely that we're going to get further than that. So yeah, let's let's say chapter seven, um, and uh, we'll uh, we'll 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 see how far we can get through as we continue. We're 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 getting there. We're moving our way through. Uh, should only be a couple more months, uh, and we'll be we'll be uh, finished with the book. Thank you, everybody. Uh, fun discussion tonight, as always. And I will see you guys soon. Bye now.